Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. I'm looking for support in 2018 to keep the show going and have started a GoFundMe. If the show has been of any help to you on your writing journey, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating so that I can continue airing. Visit GoFundMe.com and search for Writer Writer Pants on Fire to contribute. Today's guest is Amy Trueblood, author of Nothing But Sky, which released from Flux Books earlier this year. Amy joined me today to talk about selling her book without an agent and the importance of research, whether you're on the hunt for an agent or going it on your own. 16-year-old Mike lives for mountain biking, but she'll need a new level of endurance to navigate high school and live life by her rules in The Trail Rules by Melanie Hoinka. Perfect for fans of outdoor adventure, swoony kisses, and figuring out who you really are. You sold your novel to Flux on your own without an agent. So talk about that process and how it worked out for you as a writer on her own, pitching her own manuscript. It was a very crazy situation. I had actually had an agent and was on sub with a book for probably close to 18 months. And I really, really liked my agent, but I was really sad that the book wasn't selling. I had some close calls Unfortunately, what happens with historical fiction a lot of times, especially in the young adult world, is it's just not a really big genre. And so what I was coming up against a lot of times was I'd get to acquisitions. Everybody would be like, oh, we already have a historical fiction for our list. It was just really sad and frustrating for me. And I really loved Nothing But Sky. I parted with my agent very amicably. I just told her I needed some time to think and figure out what I was going to do next. So about three months later, I still was thinking about the book, and I had a very good friend who was an editor. I sent her the book, and I was like, hey, will you take a look at this for me and just tell me if it has any legs, what you think, should I give up on it, should I move on? And so she took a look at it for me, and she sent me back an email that basically said, I will be very sad if you give up on this book. This book has merit. This book is important here are my notes, work on it, send it back to me. So I worked for another three months and sent it back to her. And she's like, you have to send this book out. We talked about a few small presses that took unsolicited submissions and I sent it to Flux and I connected with Mikkel George, who's lovely and wonderful. Her book came out earlier this year, Speak Easy, Speak Love. And I was very nervous because her book is 1920s as well. And so I thought, oh my gosh, if I've missed anything research-wise, she will definitely catch it. And so she sent me an email and basically said, I love this book. I want to take it to acquisitions. About, I'd say, three or four weeks later, she called me and said, yeah, Flux wants to buy it. I cried for probably 24 hours straight. (laughs) I was really, just really, really happy that I hadn't given up on the book. The editor, Ashley Hearn, she's now an editor at Page Street, uh, was the one that told me, Amy, don't give up on this book. And I'm so glad I listened to her. And I'm so glad that I listened to my instincts because I'm so, so happy with the book as it is now and with the phenomenal job that Flux has done for me. It's been a really, really great experience. And have you since gone out and tried to get an agent for future projects? I'm working on a new historical fiction project. 
So I'm trying to work through that right now. And when it basically gets to a point where I think it might be ready to query, I might look at doing the agent thing again. I had actually written in between after I'd written Nothing But Sky, I had written totally something off brand, adult contemporary romance, just because I needed to get my head out of researching and all that stuff. And I queried that book for a while. It wasn't working. And so now I'm back to writing historical fiction again. And I think once I get done with this book, I'll decide to query. I definitely think that if you want to have a long career in this business, you should have an agent. It is no fun to negotiate a contract on your own, but I had lots of people who helped me with this book, lots of people in the industry who helped me and and told me what to do and guided me in the right direction. And I'll be very grateful for them for helping me with that. But I think if you want to have a long career in this business, you definitely need an agent. And that's just my own personal opinion. I know some people would probably disagree with me on that, but I think if you want to have a long career and somebody who's looking out for you, uh, you know, many books ahead, then you definitely need an agent. I would agree with that. I have found agents, my agent, to be incredibly helpful, not just project by project, but career building, giving me advice on branding, which you mentioned, even to the extent of which manuscripts to pitch next in tone to follow up what came before. What are my readers going to transition to most easily of the different projects that I have bubbling in my mind? Which one is going to be the best follow up to my most recent release? My own experience has always been with an agent and it's always been positive. And obviously, you've had success without one, and that's fantastic. And Flux is one of the publishers that you can pitch your manuscript to directly without an agent. Do you happen to know of any others you could mention for the listeners here? Page Street takes unsolicited manuscripts. They're fairly new. They just had their first, I think, one or two books come out starting in January. So they're fairly new. I know, um, again, I mentioned Ashley Hearn, who's an editor over there, and I love her to death. And I know they're doing good work Entangled and places like that take unsolicited submissions. Um, and I think there might even be an arm, and don't quote me on this, but I think there might even be an arm of Kensington that takes unsolicited mm-hmm. submissions. Source books also took unsolicited submissions, but I don't know if they're close to unsolicited submissions now. Mm-hmm. My best recommendation is, is if you're going to go that route, I'm always a big advocate for doing your research. Really, no matter if you're agented or not agented, you still need to really do your research and you want to need to make sure that if you're sending your work somewhere, you just don't want to hand it over to just anyone. So if you're going to go to a smaller press that takes unsolicited subs, I just really recommend that you do your research, that you really look into them. And then even I'd recommend if you are wanting to go with a smaller press that you even try to find out who's published through them and try to connect with them through social media and try to get a handle on what their experience with them as well, because that's really where you're going to get your best answers. Everybody I talked to who had worked with press prior to me signing with them just had nothing but really fantastic, good things to say about them. So that's why I went ahead and I had done a lot of research on them as well. But I would just really recommend if you're going to go that route, that again, you just really be diligent and you try to get as much information as you can before handing over your, your baby of a manuscript that you've worked so hard on. That's true at all steps of publishing process, be it when you're writing queries to actually writing the book. Research, research, research. Mm -hmm. And I know that that is an annoying Mm -hmm. part of the job. And if you're not going to do the research, you're not going to succeed. 
took me 10 years to get published, and that's partially because I was naive and bullheaded at the same time, which is not a good mix. And I didn't want to do that research, and I didn't want to do the work, and I didn't want to put the effort into knowing how to write a really good query letter. I just wanted to get published. It took me 10 years to really figure out that I didn't know what I was doing, and I wasn't some black swan ready to be discovered, (laughs) you know, it just, that wasn't what was going on. I had to go through those hoops just like everybody else. And it's an important aspect to realize, I think. When I started writing, you know, seriously in like 2010, I did what most people did. Most new writers did, you know, you write that first book and then you query it right away and it's a mess and you don't get any requests. And so at that point I started thinking, well, I really should be a student of publishing. And so I basically spent the next two or three years just studying how publishing worked, figuring out how the query process worked, figuring out how agents worked, figuring out how publishers worked. I asked people incessant questions, you know, if they were on submission, how does that work? What does that look like behind the scenes? Uh, what does working with an agent look like? And I just basically made myself a student of the process so that when I got to a point where I was ready to query again, I kind of knew which pitfalls to avoid and what things I wanted to do and not do. Um, And I would suggest that for anybody, learn as much as you can about the publishing business because it will only help you in the future as you move forward in your career. And the more you know, I think the better informed decisions you can make. And another thing, you were mentioning the publishing presses that do accept unsolicited manuscripts. Quite a few presses will actually open up at specific times. Sometimes they're looking for specific manuscripts. They'll do a call for submissions, sometimes for a specific type of genre that they're looking for, and they just haven't had anything come through to them that they've really loved. So they will open up to submissions occasionally. Smaller presses will. Occasionally arms of larger presses as well. We'll have an open call for submissions for typically a targeted group of manuscripts that they're looking for, but it never hurts to follow those publishers, follow anybody you're interested in working with, and just be aware of what they're doing. I often on my own Twitter feed, whenever I see a call for submissions, I always RT it because that can be a true lifeline for somebody. Oh, sure, definitely. And I think if you're on sub too, one time when I was on sub with nothing but sky, I saw an editor tweet about how her list was really thin on young adult historical fiction. So I just quickly sent a, an email off to my agent and I was like, can we please sub to her? So it's definitely something where I think if you are keeping an eye out and following editors and following, you know, agents and publishers, you know, sometimes you can come across something that can be really helpful. It's not always just networking. It's just having that inflow of information in front of you. Follow agents, follow editors, follow other writers, follow published writers. A lot of us are constantly RTing or tweeting things we see that could help uh, people in the query or in the manuscript submission trenches. So follow those people. Coming up, the inspiration for Nothing But Sky and why Amy aims to help aspiring writers with features on her blog. Get your copy of The Earth Bleeds Red by Jackson Bear. It's available today on Amazon Kindle, paperback, and audiobook. The Earth Bleeds Red is the new audiobook from Jackson Bear. It's part suspense and part literary fiction. Here's what readers are saying. I am still trying to wrap my head around this book. The story was compelling and drew me in from page one. I couldn't put it down. Another book blogger who rated it five stars said, I will be talking about this novel when my other book friends need a good suspense book to read. 
If you're looking for something different, you've found the right book. As written by this top Goodreads reviewer, oh my, this is the best murder mystery suspense book I've read in a long time. I absolutely loved it. Again, it's titled The Earth Bleeds Red by Jackson Bear. It's available Amazon Kindle, that's the ebook, paperback, and also on audiobook through Audible. You can also learn more about the author and the book at his website, jacksonbear.com, or search The Earth Bleeds Red on Amazon today. Your upcoming book, Nothing But Sky, is set in the 1920s and features a teen female main character who wants to be a wing walker at the World Aviation Expo. That is a really cool setting. So where did the idea come from? It actually started with a visit to a museum in 2013. I was at the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry, and I walked in the door and tethered to the ceiling was a biplane, except it was tethered upside down. And I was like, okay, that's really weird. I had been to the Smithsonian and other places and seen planes tethered, but had never seen one tethered upside down. And the actual plane was a Curtis JN4, affectionately called a Jenny. When I got up to the second floor to take a closer look at the plane, there was actually a mannequin hanging off of it, which I thought was really strange too. So I looked at the exhibit signage next to it, which said the name Ethel Dare. And she was actually a female wing walker in the early 1920s. And it detailed just a little bit about her life and the world of barnstorming and the fact that these Jennies had been surplus planes from World War One, and pilots had come back after the war still wanting to fly. And so they bought these planes for surplus for about $200. And they started flying across the country and doing shows. And so, of course, immediately as a writer, I start thinking of all these what-if questions. What if I could write a story about a young girl who basically hung off planes for a living all to keep her family together. Like in that second, as I was reading that display, that idea came to my head. So that night I went back to the hotel and just started researching and found that there were at least four or five women who were fairly well-known in this time period who did this for a living, some of who were like 18, 19 years old. And I just thought, oh, here we go. Here's an idea. So I just started researching them, decided I wanted to write this book, mostly because of the fact that one of the most disturbing or disappointing things I should say about researching this women is they were basically relegated to a line or two on of Wikipedia or maybe a line or two in an aviation article. But there wasn't ever anything really written about these women and recognizing these extraordinary things they did in the sky. And so as I read more and more about them, I thought I really want to take their experiences and somehow include them in my fictional character, Grace, just so that they can be noticed and recognized for actually living this incredible life and history not maybe recognizing them so much, but this story allowing me to at least give them a little bit of nod to what they did. Mm -hmm. Definitely. It's one of those things that you realize more as you get older, I think, these crevices of time where some people were doing really amazing things that you have never heard of these people, especially women and minorities, but people that have really struck out and done something that no one else had done before. And we don't know their names and we don't know anything about them. And sometimes it can be a museum display or it can be a random rabbit hole. You went down one night on Wikipedia and you'll find a truly amazing (laughs) person that you had never heard of until now. 
when I was researching this, all these names started coming up. So one of the fun things about writing historical fiction, too, is that when you do the research, you start coming into contact with not only these people, but then like historical figures that you think, oh, my gosh, they could have actually crossed paths with my character. Mm -hmm. So I did a lot of research about Bessie Coleman. I read a whole biography about her, and I was like, oh, my gosh, she could have been in Chicago at the same time my main character Grace could be. So I included Bessie Coleman, who, um, for those people who don't know, she was the first African-American woman to get her pilot's license. Unfortunately, she could only get her license in France because they wouldn't let her get it in the U.S., so she was, you know, one of those noted characters that you maybe hear on the on the sidelines a little bit. You've probably heard her name mentioned once or twice as far as historical aviation, but she lived this incredible life. And I knew I wanted to at least have her make an appearance in the book. It was nice to be able to include aspects of those people's lives, too, into the book, just to give a nod to the fact that these people existed and they did live extraordinary lives. Mm-hmm. And often, too, especially with women and minorities, I see one person being used as an example that stands for the whole. So like I know Amelia Earhart is a pilot and not a wing walker, but when we talk about women in aviation, typically we're talking about Amelia Earhart and there were plenty of, of really daring female pilots and women that worked in aviation. There were women in World War II that would fly um, B-29s, not in battle, but they flew them in between airfields at home. They were trained pilots. You don't hear about them. So I think it's important to talk about those people that were doing something extraordinary for their time. Tell me a little bit about what kind of books you were reading while you were doing your research on these women, but also on the time period. Actually, one of the biggest parts of my research came from YouTube. Ah, cool. (laughs) I just happened to be on YouTube one day and I just typed in one of the women's names who happened to be Lillian Boyer. She basically was a waitress in a diner in Chicago, and a pilot came in and basically said, you want to go for a flight? And from that point forward, she just loved flying, and she actually went on to have her own show. And so I just put her name into YouTube one day, and up came this black and white video of her actually doing all these stuff. That kind of opened it up, and so I put in like female wing walker 1920 and all these black and white videos came up of Gladys Engel, who was the only female in the 13 black cats, which uh, was a performing group in Hollywood. Um, It was all men except for her. And they have this black and white video of her actually flying, you know, 500 feet in the air. She changed planes midair, no parachute to help another pilot who lost a tire on takeoff. And in the actual video, she actually climbs down and repairs the tire, puts a tire actually on the axle and basically saves the pilot's life. There's actually a scene in in my book, Nothing But Sky, that kind of mirrors that a little bit. Must have watched that video a hundred times just to get it right. When I started researching, I did a lot of reading. I did a lot of reading on World War One. My uh, other main character, Henry, a combat soldier in World War One, and he has some issues. And so I did a lot of research on World War One. But I also did a lot of just studying of all these videos to try to get a sense of what this life was like. And again, incredibly amazing was these women were doing all these stunts, 500, 1,000 feet in the air, no parachute, no tether. So every single second they went up, every show they performed, there was always the chance they wouldn't come down alive. I am terribly afraid of heights. And the neat thing is, is that I was just did a school visit last week and all of the guys, of course, were like, did any of them die? And I was like, actually, most of them lived to be old and gray. 
so there weren't a lot of stories of these women falling to their death, thankfully enough. But there were definitely were a lot of crashes, which goes back to why the Airmail Act of 1927 was enacted, because there were just a lot of people who were flying without licenses and causing quite a bit of trouble and crashing their planes into trees and into barns and things like that. And I actually found a 1919 aircraft manual, a mechanics manual that I used a lot of the mechanics in the book on. And I think about these planes like flying in combat and they just sadly like the ricketiest, scariest things ever. So to think about these pilots actually doing these loop-de-loops and tricks and then actually having somebody out on the wing while they were doing all of that is just surreal to me. I can't actually believe people did it. (laughs) So let's talk about your blog. Your blog's a great resource for aspiring writers including such running series as Quite the Query and Query 101. So tell us about those and what made you decide to take that approach on your blog to help aspiring writers and have query advice and query feedback. You (laughs) were one of the first people I ever interviewed for my blog. You and R.C. Lewis were like two of the people that I knew through Agent Query Connect. So you were the first two people all the way back in 2012 who I like begged. Um, I actually remember writing those emails and being so nervous. I'm like, I'm going to write this and they're either not going to respond or they're going to be like, no way, I don't have time for you. And you two were both so sweet. And you were like, yes, of course, sure. So I have to give a shout out to both of you because I think if you guys had not been so kind to me at the beginning, I probably would never continue to write my blog. I decided early on, about a year into blogging, that I wanted to start providing tools that would help other writers. So one of the things that constantly came up when I was querying and I heard from other people was, is that weren't enough published successful queries on the internet of people who had worked and reworked their queries and then whatever they had shown to an agent had actually connected them with an agent. So I just started putting out feelers on social media and saying, hey, if your agent will allow it and you feel comfortable, because what ends up happening is, is that whatever the original query is that they hooked their agent, their book that's actually out now or coming out really doesn't even really mirror the query now. So a lot of people were really nervous about sharing them, but the ones that were open to sharing with me, um, I just put them up. It's everything from, you know, adult all the way down to picture book. And people were really kind about letting me share. And that has been some of the best feedback that I've gotten from the blog is people who are like, oh my gosh, I didn't know how to write a dual POV query and you posted one and thank you so much. That was the real reasoning for me wanting to do things like this series. And then of course the query 101 series, which is just basically breaking down the basics of a query and starting from the very beginning about how do you write a query and then how do you go about researching agents? And then I even had an interview on there with an agent that talks about what you should ask if you get the call. So I just decided that I had so many people along my journey who were kind enough to help me and give me advice that I wanted to go ahead and pass that information along in my blog. So that's why I did that. And I also have the the first five frenzy, which is literary agents who answer five questions about what hooks them in the first five pages of a manuscript. And so that's always been a huge help, not only for other writers, but then every time an, an agent sends me back their answers, I'm also learning something new about what they like or what they don't like when they're reading mm-hmm. an opening to a book. Again, all kind of circles back to just wanting to provide content to writers so that they have the information up front 
it's the kind of resource that I really wish I would have had myself when I was querying and when I was in the trenches and I was trying to figure out how you do this thing. There weren't many blogs that were actually addressing that. And it's one of the reasons I started Writer Writer Pants on Fire. It's because I saw a market for people like me, like who I had been. And I was like, dude, no one's doing this for people. No one is actually showing them examples of queries that work or giving them feedback on their own queries. Because that was my biggest thing that I was struggling with was actually getting feedback from someone that really knew what they were doing on a query. So that's one of the reasons Mm -hmm. I started my blog. And it sounds like your motivations were very similar. I think the first five is awesome. That's wonderful. Have you had luck with getting agents and editors to agree to give you their time in that way? Yeah, I haven't counted recently, but I know that I have, I think, over 70 or 75 agents who are actually on the blog now who have answered those questions the biggest struggle for people, especially when they're querying, is they may have a top-notch query, but sometimes their opening just is not striking the right chord. So sometimes just by reading what agents like and don't like, that'll kind of open a door in their mind of something maybe perhaps that they want to change in their opening that might help with the whole submission process and that package that they have to provide in a query. It's so funny because I was querying for so long that agents are still intimidating have thought about asking agents to come onto the podcast and I'm always like oh they don't want to be bothered by me like I'm still I'm still in in this nobody cares about you Mindy you know? <laughs> I always find myself like I'm so sorry to bother you I know you're so busy but you know and then at the at the end I'm always like thank you so much for your time and consideration because I'm the same way I know they're so busy I know they're inbox is bulging with queries and probably the last thing they want to do is answer my five questions. But, you know, I figured nothing ventured, nothing gained. And the worst they could do would be to say no. Right. And a lot have said no. So that happens. But luckily enough for me, people have been kind enough to say yes. I'm just always in that headspace of agents are powerful angels from heaven. (laughs) I do not want to come too close to their blinding light. I don't know. That's just who I am. I I, I spent so long, so, so long waiting for one of them to love me that I still, I still have that hang up. Lastly, the importance of maintaining writerly friendships, even when jealousy wants to come between you and balancing the demands of research versus forging forward with your story when writing historical fiction. What's some writing advice you've received that you've really taken to heart? Like something that really reshaped your earlier conceptions of what writing is or what it could be? I think the thing that was really difficult for me at the beginning was when I started out, I had a ton of friends who started out in the same place as me. They were querying and what ended up happening isn't it happens to a lot of writers. And that's why I want to share this is, is I kind of got left behind in the dust a little bit. They got agents, then they signed deals, and they had books out, and they were publishing, and I just really felt left behind and wondering what I was doing wrong. And then I had a good friend say to me, 
You are hurting yourself by comparing your path to other writers. You are Amy. You write in a totally, completely different category and genre than your friends. And I know you're happy for them and excited to see their success, but Mm -hmm. you can't let yourself get too down. And so what's what I always tell people is to keep your eyes on your own path, that you have your own story to tell and you have your own journey. And that was really hard to come to grips with that. But I think once I figured out that... I was going to have perhaps a more arduous task of trying to sell my book, but that it was something that I believed in and I believed in the story and I didn't want to give up on it. And I couldn't continue comparing Mm -hmm. my um, road to anybody else's. And I think once I accepted that, it felt so much better and it gave me focus just to sit in front of the computer and just work and work and revise and revise until I could get it right. And it's so funny now that um, my books come out, all those people are the, my biggest cheerleaders and in my corner. And I can't imagine not having them in my life. And I think if I had allowed jealousy or anything like that to get in my way, I still wouldn't have those people in my corner. And so I'm just very grateful for them to be honest with me and to say, hey, don't give up, keep trying. Your writing has merit, but you can't worry about what we're doing. You need to focus on your own path. And I still really believe that today. And when people ask me or people send me notes or DMs and say they're so sad because they've been on submission for two years and their book isn't selling, if you really want this, you just have to stick it out. You bring up a great point that actually is something I've never addressed here on the podcast before. So I love it when that happens. But a lot of us do tend to travel in groups. We are writers and we find our people. And a lot of the time, your people that you originally are attaching with are people that are at around or about the same level that you are. I met all of my critique partners when we were in the query trenches together. We all got published right around the same time. I was the first. And then a year later, both of my other critique partners landed their deals and have gone on to be published with major publishers. And I am still in contact with them and use those critique partners all the time. These are people that I am still in contact with and our career paths, all three of us were picked up right around the same time. Our paths have still been different and we have gone different directions and some of us have had more success than others. I know that we do all compare ourselves to each other and We're all straightforward enough with each other to throw it out there. So I've had my critique partner say to me, yeah, I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm jealous. I am jealous of your success and I'm jealous of what you've achieved. But at the same time, I don't resent it at all because I know how hard you work. And she says, Mm -hmm. you know, I know you deserve everything that you get. So I can say I'm jealous. There's no resentment. And, And I'm like, no, that's cool. I have tons of people whose success makes me feel less. So, I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. There's always someone that is outperforming you. There's always someone who's yeah. cover. You're going to be like, damn it. Mm-hmm. Why isn't my cover that awesome? All of my covers are awesome. I love all my covers. And then occasionally I'll see a cover that I'm like, oh, I want that cover. Erin Bowman's covers for her Westerns. Damn it. Like, I want that cover. Mm-hmm. I don't have anything that cover would go on, you know, but I want that cover. Or like somebody gets the Entertainment Weekly feature, somebody gets the bustle feature, you know, and you don't get those things. It is not useful to mentally document those things because it is beyond your control and it is not healthy to you and your career and it's not healthy to your friendships either. Yeah, it's wasted energy, but that's hard to see when you're actually in the moment. 
it was nice that I had friends who were straightforward enough with me to be like, stop focusing so much on what I'm doing. You focus on what you need to be doing because what you're writing has Mm -hmm. merit. It just has to find its time and its place. Grateful to have friends who are honest enough with me and supported enough of me to say, you do it on your own. And in your own time, when it happens, we will be so happy and so supportive of you. So have you ever had any advice related directly to writing or craft or the process of writing that was particularly helpful? Or is there a particular piece of advice that you've always heard that you disagree with? Oh, that's a good question. The best piece of advice I've ever incorporated in my own work is to try to to go ahead and, and focus on the story and, and push forward. Because unfortunately, I'm one of those people who always has to go back mm-hmm. and read like mm-hmm. the chapter before when I'm writing, when I'm first drafting. And I've had a lot of people say you can get caught up and not be able to move forward. So I've tried to really incorporate my own writing, at least when I'm drafting, mm-hmm. just push forward, try not to go back and edit too much and just try to push forward and get that first draft done. And again, it's universal and it's always said among writers, but that first draft is it's okay for that first draft to be a mess. Just get the words down, get the ideas down because even if it's a mess and it's an 80,000 or an 85,000 word Mm -hmm. mess, at least the story from your head is now on paper. And now you can go back and be like a sculptor and massage it and make it what you need it Mm -hmm. to be. But first it has to be down on the paper. My whole focus is just to get the story down. If I was going to give a piece of, of, of craft advice is get the story down don't make it beautiful. Don't make it nice. Don't go back and re-edit and edit. You get into this vicious cycle where you're just going back constantly right. and wanting to change things and there's no forward progress. I had Lisa Shirtliff on the podcast. She writes middle grade. She said, you can't edit nothing. She's right. You can't edit nothing. Mm -hmm. You have to have something in front of you in order to edit it and improve it. So that's why it doesn't matter how crappy that first draft is. It exists. It's supposed to be crappy. That's its duty. Now you fix it. And as Liesl said, you can't edit nothing. You have to get in there and make it better. And first it has to suck and it has to exist. Let me add too, it's particularly difficult if you write historical fiction because there are so many pieces and parts you have to drop Mm -hmm. in from research and from historical background and stuff like that. So that can also be something that really sidelines you when you're drafting. I'm writing a draft right now. Um, It's historical fiction. And what I'm finding now is that I have enough understanding of the process where I get to a point, I just kind of put in a big chunk of text comment to myself that says, add research here go back to so-and-so notebook and find this research. And then I just push forward with the story from that point on. And that really helps give me forward momentum. I know I'm going to have to go back and and add that detail, but if I can at least make a note to myself that I have to go back Mm -hmm. and I can still push the story forward, that has really been very helpful for me. When I am writing, I will read what I wrote the day before. It's usually about a thousand words. So I'll read what I wrote the day before and then that's it. I don't let myself go back any further. I'll fix really small things and I just read to set myself in the continuity of the narrative so I know where I'm at. Dive back in because you're right. You have to move forward or else you will never, ever finish. <laughs> you will never finish anything. You were talking about historicals. You are talking about those details. When oh, I was yeah. writing A Madness So Discreet, at one point I was drafting and I had written Somebody Called the Cops. And I was like, okay, okay, they're going to call the cops. They're going to call the cops. And I made a note. Are they calling the cops? Who are they calling? It's 1890 in Boston. Are they calling cops? Are they calling 
the constables? Are they calling? Who are they calling? Do you even use the word yeah. calling? <laughs> Good Do they have a phone? How would you go about getting the attention of the cops? And I was like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And all of a sudden I had one line of dialogue that I needed to do 15 minutes of research for. And I made a little note on the side, mm-hmm. figure this out. And then I just kept going. <laughs> I had one thing where my copy editor caught the word pizzazz and it was kind of really on the like cusp of whether or not it was in, used in regular vernacular a lot. It actually was like a phrase coined by Coco Chanel, but there I had done etymology and it had been used off and on, but it wasn't really in the regular vernacular. And so my copy editor and I went back and forth and back and forth. And there's actually this great thing that you might know about too. It's called Ngram, which is a Google application and it will if you put in a word it will show when was like the first time that word was actually used like in books so sometimes I'll go back and look at that and when I put pizzazz in there it was really on the borderline so we just decided that it was just best to take that word out and find a better word that would be more time period appropriate tell us about what's up next for you what are you working on and where can listeners find you online I am writing another young adult historical fiction book. I'm loving it. It's 1930 San Francisco, and that's about all I can say about that right now. I can be found um, on my website. It's amytruebloodauthor.com, and there is a pull-down button for my blog, which will take you to all the things we discussed today, the Quite the Query and the Query 101 and the First Five Frenzy. And then on Twitter, I'm at atrueblood5. On Instagram, I'm atruebloodwrites. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting GoFundMe.com and searching for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. Or visit the blog by going to WriterWriterPantsOnFire.blogspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Join me next week for another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist.